This is an Area Code podcast. This episode of Table of Malcontents is brought to you by Gospel Centered Discipleship on April 13th in Louisville. It's Louisville. Louisville? Louisville? Louisville. Louisville. That's how you got to say Okay. I think so. So on April 13th, right before Together for the Gospel, Gospel Centered Discipleship is hosting their 2020 Writers Intensive, featuring Ronnie Martin, Jonathan Dodson, and Jared C. Wilson. This event is all about equipping Christian writers to grow as leaders and disciple makers in the world today. Dude, I just noticed I'm a little upset that they didn't include you. I don't think they like Canadians. No, what do you think? Well, no. no, they do love Canadians. I think they it's do. more that I'm just not helpful. They just don't like you. It's yeah, okay. That's right. It's all right. But anyway, head over to gcdiscipleship.com today to learn more and register. You're listening to The Table of Malcontents, where Aaron Armstrong, Dave Schrader, and Jeremy Reipal talk about the books they love and a few they really don't to help you be a better reader. Hey everybody, welcome to Table of Malcontents. I'm Aaron, and with me as always is Dave. As always. As yeah, always. There's no other like There's no pretty much there. this time. We're confident we've worked through our issues together in the car on the way to visit our special guest today. Absolutely, you know, yes. Had a good talk. We are still in the frozen tundra of Minnesota, and we love it completely. It's true, so. I feel like my Canadian accent's coming back. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but no, we are uh, we are honored. We're still here, like I said. But uh, we are um, here with William Kent Kruger. Kent Kruger, you go by Kent. I go by Kent. So, which I remember reading about that at one point. But uh, um, I'll just go right in, and then I'll introduce you. But like, when did you? Have you always gone by Kent? Yeah, always I come from a long line of Bills, and yeah. I didn't want to be another Bill. Okay. Mm. So I uh, have always, with the exception of the seventh grade, have always gone by my. Middle name Kent. Yeah, I was mm-hmm. Bill in the seventh yeah. grade, and it just felt all wrong. Yeah. Mm. Okay. All right. Well, um, and then I'll just keep going on with that too. So, when did you decide? Okay, as your pen name as an author, it would still be William Kent Kruger. Just do the full name. You never thought about doing Kent Kruger or go by W K like some people would do. Yeah. Yeah. When uh, my first novel, Iron Lake, was uh, had been accepted for publication. Um, I had to figure out what I wanted to publish under. My daughter was into numerology at that point. So Mm -hmm. I pitched to her every permutation of my name, William Kent Kruger, William K. Kruger, Mm -hmm. W. Kent Kruger, Kent Kruger, William Kruger, everything you could possibly think Mm -hmm. of. And I asked her to run the numbers. And uh, uh, numerologically speaking, William Kent Kruger came out the best, so I stuck with it. It, You know, it's that very literary three-name thing. Yeah. Yeah. a lot of writers go by it, but serial killers do too. So. That's true. Okay. That's true. I'm, I'm not sure how much good it does, man. <laughs> oh, gosh. Okay. All right. That, Backup that's a career whole, option? I know. At least you have something yeah. to go on. Yeah. I was, Everyone I am, needs a fallback. That's true. I am finishing up Breaking Bad by right now, finally. So I, my mind's in all these crazy places. So, yeah. But, yeah, uh, I mean, that's not the kind of side hustle you want. No, so Not really. No. No, no. no, but Kent, thank you for being here with us today. Um, A pleasure, of, but I just want to take yeah. issue with one yeah. thing you've already said, Dave. Uh-oh. You call this the frozen tundra of Minnesota. I just want to point out that it's in the 20s out there, which in winter is like the banana belt here. That's true. So we're, and it's sunny. Yes, it is. So it's it's not half bad out there right now. No, this this is this is very good weather. Uh, there have been a few years. I remember we've been in the negative tens, somewhere around that range, yep. and. 
that's some of the coldest weather I've felt before growing up in Tennessee to Missouri. But yeah. at the same time, it is not bad. You're right. Yeah. Well, we were just talking about the polar vortex that's that settled true. over us last year for a very yeah. long period of time. That's true. 25 below air temperature. You know, you factor in the wind chill and you're talking 50 below. Yep. Yep. It was, uh, it was horrifying. It reminded me of my childhood. And I think I had visions of it. Um, pretty sure I was going to die. <laughs> I, 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 I believe it. Um, I'm going to I'm going to keep going with that. Did you just did, did that help you write during that time? The fact that you could not leave, or did that still drive you crazy? It didn't drive me crazy, nor did it have any impact whatsoever mm-hmm. on my writing. I'm a very mm-hmm. disciplined writer. Mm-hmm. So seven days a week, I get up at about six o'clock in the morning, mm-hmm. get myself dressed, and I go to a coffee shop and I spend the first two hours every day. Uh, writing. So mm. that's my routine. Uh, and the weather doesn't affect it. Um, even staying out too late at night and then being hungover doesn't typically affect it. Sure. At, at least my ability to get up the writing might yeah. not be that great. Right. The next It'll take day. a little bit longer. Yeah. 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 Oh, that's funny. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I know that the discipline is absolutely there. Um, so 6 a.m. is your time in, yeah. in local coffee shop. It yeah. gets you out of the house. Of absolutely. Course, you know. Absolutely. I can't write at home. Mm-hmm. I mean, if we stopped talking, you could you would hear the, how quiet it is in this yes. house. Yeah. And I've, honest to God, I've had this experience. Um, I've decided to write at home. I've had the house to myself. It's quiet as it is now. Winter day, just like this. Mm-hmm. Snow uh, outside with the sunlight glistening on it. It's all sparkly. It's exactly the kind of environment you would expect would be conducive to creative work. And what am I doing? I'm sitting there going, hmm. Shouldn't the furnace have come on by now? You know, yeah. I hear everything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The phone rings, I got to answer it. Somebody knocks at the yeah. door. I walk by the sink. I think yeah. oh, I better get to those dishes. But I'm in a coffee shop. None of that has anything to do with me. Yeah. It's this place where uh, I don't mind the white noise because that's what it is to me. Mm-hmm. And I can sink myself deeply into the imagining of whatever I, I need to work on at that point in time. Yeah. It's been my process for... 30 or 40 years now, so yeah. it's how I work. Yeah, I yeah. Know that. that's great. So you're okay just hearing people talking but not paying attention to what they're saying. You're just kind of in that mode. Okay. Yeah, the yeah. only thing that has yeah. ever bugged me when I've gone to, you know, so I, I write in coffee shops when I'm uh, on the road as well. The only thing that has ever bugged me is when I go down to um, a hotel coffee shop and they've got a television going. Yeah. It's so hard not yes. to pay attention to a television. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, we've been putting up with that for days. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. I know. Yeah, we, and we did a few interviews there, and, and the same thing. It's just like, uh, it's the hard paying attention. Yeah, time. I mean, the sound was off at least. So, so that was that is true. But so. still, there's just, sound but, is yeah. off. Yeah. But I have heard a um, a scientific explanation for mm-hmm. this: why we can't keep our eyes off the screen. We have evolved from creatures who very necessarily had to be aware of their whole environment visually. Mm-hmm. So great peripheral vision, any movement could signal danger to them. So it's movement. It doesn't have to be the sound. In fact, it's probably not the sound. It's that visual thing, that visual movement. And we just can't keep our eyes off it. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. Uh, rather than all of us being idiots, that yeah. sounds like a perfect explanation. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> On your computer when you're writing, do you take off any other apps, uh, you know, Chrome, Safari, anything that would make you want to go surf the web? You just you just keep Microsoft or is that Word not a or temptation whatever? for you. I, no, I, I maintain a connection to the internet because periodically yeah. I'll be typing along and, um, geez, how is that word really spelled? Yeah. Pop onto the internet to figure that out. Or, yeah. wait a minute, what year was that really? Pop onto the internet. 
but I don't surf. I don't go on to yeah. entertain myself or distract myself. Yeah. That's not the purpose. Yeah, yeah. Well, because yeah. you pointed out, it's useful. It's there for it a reason is, to help. Yeah, it's, it's a tool. Um, but it's the discipline that gets you through it, actually. Yeah. Yep. Do you have a word count target every day? Never do. I, okay. I am. Sh what I shoot for is to be able to find myself drawn deeply into the imagining of whatever I believe I'm supposed to be writing that yeah. day. Mm -hmm. And I'm so... I've been doing this for so long that typically that's not a problem. If it is a problem, what, I'll t what I generally speaking will do is imagine something farther along in a story, a scene that does, for whatever reason, compel me. I'll start working on that scene instead. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of like greasing the wheels, mm -hmm. greasing the gears, and eventually I'm able to get back to the work that I need to do that day. So I'm, I'm usually just involved in writing whatever I can accomplish in a couple of hours. Mm -hmm. I try to leave myself at the end of every writing period with a sense of how I'm going to move into this the next day. Mm -hmm. You know, Hemingway, mm -hmm. he used mm -hmm. to stop in mid-sentence knowing exactly how he wanted to finish that sentence so he could sit down the next day and just be off yeah. and running. Yeah. yeah, I had read that at one point. It's just fascinating. Some people have They've gone off to a whole other zone at that point, but he can do that. Yeah, yeah. Wow, I don't mind. Yeah, no. So um, um, I do want to kind of uh, you know dig into the books, but it's more um, I want to educate those who are listening just a little bit about you. Um, first of all, like that, I've read a couple of your books so far, and I'm one of those where who have come in late into the game, which you had discovered a lot. There's a lot of new readers now with this Tender Land and Ordinary Grace, which I absolutely loved, but. Um, um, working in publishing, I was most fascinated with, wow, he has been writing for 30 years. You know, this has been a long time. You've always been writing. It's just suddenly you find a reader like me and, and Aaron and, and many others. I remember being at BA just thinking, I was asking people, like, have you ever read these books? Like, no, this is my first. And uh, and they've loved mm -hmm. it. But so it's that it's that consistency over time. And I know you've always read, uh, written mysteries, uh, starting with your Cork O'Connor uh, mystery series. Uh, so tell me just when you set out to write, um, even some of your first books, did you know what you were getting yourself into? Did you know a direction that all this was going in? My father was a high school English teacher, and so I was raised on literature with a capital L. Mm -hmm. When I was 18 years old, my father insisted that I read Ernest Hemingway, and I fell madly in love with Hemingway. Um, and so... For the first uh, <laughs> at least two decades, and probably more, of my writing endeavor, I tried to write the great American novel as Hemingway might have written it, stupid on so many levels. Um, and then I went through a midlife crisis in my early 40s and decided, I want to write something somebody might actually want to read. And I looked around me to see what people read, and do you know what everybody reads? Mysteries. Mm -hmm. Everybody reads mysteries. It's a genre whose appeal cuts across all socioeconomic levels. So I decided, okay, I'm going to write a mystery. Yeah. So here's a confession coming from a mystery writer. Before I began to write mysteries, I didn't read them. You know, like my father, I considered them the poor stepchildren of literature. So I had a lot to learn. Um, but in the course of, of learning about what I'm reading, finally reading mysteries and being so impressed with um, the quality of the writing that's out there in mysteries and the, um, all of the things that you can do with using mystery as your vehicle, I was so impressed. Um, so by the time I had completed my first manuscript, my first published novel, Iron Lake, the first in my Cork O'Connor series, 
I was hooked on mysteries. Um, here's what I love about mysteries. A mystery, there, a lot of people who don't read mysteries, like, like me early on, believe that mysteries are formulaic, um, that you know they all play out the same way, right? When, when I began thinking about writing a mystery, I, I believed, honest to God, I believed that there was some sort of a template that your publisher sent you and you had to write to. You know, that's nonsense, yeah. that's nonsense. But what I discovered is, is that there is, in fact, a structure to, to mysteries, and it's a it's a structure that I really like. Um, it's very simple. The structure of a mystery goes like this: a mystery, typically speaking, begins with something happening. Usually, that's a crime. Often, it's a murder. Investigation follows, and answers are found. That's it. Mm -hmm. Something happens. Investigation follows, and answers are found. It's a very simple structure, very loose structure, um, and very flexible. Within that structure. A mystery writer can do anything he or she wants to do. You know, you, you think of yourself as a humorous person, you write a funny mystery. You think of yourself as an historian, you write an historical mystery. You, you know, you like philosophy, fine. You can put philosophy in there so long as you don't slow the pace. These days yeah. you can get away with throwing vampires and werewolves into your mysteries if that's what floats your boat. Um, and I like that. <laughs> I like that, that the reach of this genre is so broad that it can embrace any interest that a reader or a writer might have. Yeah. 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 So I, I'm hooked on mysteries. I, I um, have begun to move away from that in my standalones a bit. Although I think of my standalones as very much in the genre. Ordinary yeah. Grace, there's a significant mystery at the heart of Ordinary Grace. And this tender land, it deals with kidnapping, murder, prostitution, uh, bootlegging. Mm -hmm. What could be more in the, in the crime genre than that? Yeah, you know? exactly. Uh -huh. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I, I was. That's why, because I think before I'd written any of your books, I, I, I read. You know, of course, you being a mystery writer, and so I. But I wasn't expecting since these are standalone. I thought, okay, he's going to divert and go in a different direction. But there is that element yeah. to these, which mm -hmm. I love. Um, and one thing that's neat, I, I like about mysteries too. It keeps you hooked all the way to the end. It a good for, mystery. It forces, it yes, forces you. That's true. To. I mean, yeah. yeah, because otherwise, there's some books you read that you kind of give up on. You know, at some point. Well, one of the yeah. one of the other elements of a good mystery. Um, that I love is the fact that it's simply a story in the way we think of stories. Yeah. There is a beginning, there is a middle, and there is an end. Mm -hmm. And so you can follow that arc and anticipate that there will be, I will, I will get to this end, answers will be found, maybe justice will be done, the world will be set right again. And, um, and that's an, an anticipation that most readers have, and that as a writer, I try to work at fulfilling. Mm -hmm. Well, you clearly uh, have been influenced also in terms of like the setting. You know, you're, you're from Minnesota and your stories, um, I believe, do all of them take place? I believe all of them do that I've, I've seen, correct? Well, there are 17 novels yeah. currently. I've, I have finished the 18th novel in the series. It'll, we're still trying to settle on a publication okay. date for that. Okay. But, uh, but of the 17, all but three take place in okay. Minnesota. I've set a, a novel in the UP of Michigan, which is so very similar yeah. to Minnesota, okay. so readers didn't feel like they were at sea. Yeah. Uh, I set one in the Colorado, uh, the, the uh, Rocky Mountains of Wyoming, again, another wilderness landscape. Uh, winter, very familiar to readers who expect Cork O'Connor to be in a wilderness in a mm -hmm. challenging setting that way. Mm -hmm. And I set one in southern Arizona along the border. 
offering the readers a different kind of, of geographical mm-hmm. challenge, another kind of challenging landscape, but still the landscape mm-hmm. is as important as the Minnesota landscape is to most of the other novels. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, not being from Minnesota, I, I felt like the more I've read of yours, I just get this greater cultural feel of what the state is and who the people are. And uh, when you go and um, do book signings in other states, do you wh- what's the response like between people there versus in Minnesota? Well, when I do a signing in Minnesota, 200 people show up. Yeah. When I do a signing outside my area, if I get 50, I think that's a pretty good crowd. So what I find uh, tremendously interesting is is that people who have never been to Minnesota think of it as kind of an exotic locale. They have all of these mythic ideals uh, about Minnesota. You know, we are Paul Bunyan territory. Um, We have mosquitoes (laughs) that will carry off children. Um, We are the frozen tundra. Right. And only half of these things are true. So (laughs) So here's the story. My first editor uh, in New York City, he was a great guy, but I think he'd never been west of the Hudson River. So I was having a conversation with him over the phone one time. Uh, So you guys are here in in the Twin Cities. You know it's this metropolitan area of nearly 3 million people. So on the phone, Dave asked me, so Ken, there's a question I've been wondering about. Have you ever had like a moose wander into your yard? (laughs) (laughs) My response was, no, Dave. The wolves keep them away. <laughs> so it's interesting uh, uh, to speak with those people who only know Minnesota through my work. Um, but I also get a lot of transplanted Minnesotans who come to the events and who love my novels because it, it takes them home. Yeah, yeah. I, I can imagine. Um, so many of your characters are Native American or part Native American. Mm-hmm. Uh, where, where did that fascination come when, come from? Well, I, I told you earlier that I didn't read mysteries before I began to write them. I was fortunate enough in that when I decided to read mysteries, one of the very first guys I read was Tony Hillerman. Uh, for listeners who have no idea who Tony Hillerman was, he is an icon in the mystery genre. He wrote a series that was set in the Four Corners uh, area of uh, the Southwest, and that deals significantly with the Navajo culture, the culture of the Diné. Um, and in his work, Hillerman was able to weave these wonderful cultural elements into a really good mystery with a profound sense of place. And when I, I was so impressed with that, I thought, well, you know, nobody's doing that here in Minnesota. Yeah. Um, so I, I decided that maybe I would give that a shot. The other reason was this. I'm not native to Minnesota, but after we first moved here, my wife and I began doing every summer what everybody in the Twin Cities does in the summer. We started vacationing up north in the beautiful, uh, what we call the Arrowhead, mm-hmm. the, the wilderness area. And uh, there is an area up there, the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness, one of the most pristine places on the face of the earth still. Also one of the most popular wilderness areas in the, in the United States. I think a yeah. Boy Scout's going there. There right? you that's go. A big, yeah. There yeah. you go. Uh-huh. So it's, it, that's, uh-huh. that's a connection that I have with a lot of readers across the country. They know Minnesota because of the Boundary Waters. Um, when I discovered that area, I knew that's, that's where I wanted to set my work. And when I took a really good look at the North Country of Minnesota, I realized you can't set a true story in northern Minnesota without including the Ojibwe, the Anishinaabeg, as an element of the work because their influence up there is ubiquitous. It's everywhere and it's, and it's powerful. Yeah. So that was where I made that decision. What did I know about them at that point? About the same thing every white person knows about these cultures we live shoulder to shoulder with. 
nothing. Right. Uh, but I was a cultural anthropology major in college, so the idea of learning about a culture not my own was fascinating. So I began, uh, in, in the way all good academics begin, I began by reading. Uh, during my research, I began to meet members of the Ojibwe community and form relationships that have over time become um, important friendships for yeah. me. And, and that's where all of that came from. Yeah. Uh, Fascinating. Yeah. Well, just reading the first first few chapters of this Tenderland, um, um, it was it was very f- interesting to me just how you you weaved in some of the some of those the um, Native American or First Nations experiences when the, you're describing the set the the setting for the for the boys and um, some of the the language that they like some of the things that were happening with them with their uh, Boy Scout leader. Um, it reminded me a lot of the residential school experience that, yeah. that First Nations uh, people in Canada had, and yeah. it was like, oh, okay, so th- he he spent some time uh, trying to understand their their history, and so yeah, I have because I've dealt with um, Native issues for a very long time in yeah. my work. I've been aware for a very long time of this really tragic period in in, in our history and in the history of the Native people here. Mm-hmm. Um, in order to create it in, in a believable and understandable way, I did an enormous amount of reading of personal experiences, mm-hmm. those who had actually gone through the native boarding school system and, um, and tried, to, tried to sensitize myself to how, how that must have occurred yeah. so that I could write it, yeah. do a good job in writing it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I can imagine too, um yeah, you're right. Honor the characters that you're yeah. creating too, that they're as genuine as can be. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah. Um, a lot of your book titles um, all have a very, very peaceful motive. Not all, but some. This Tenderland, Ordinary Grace, but a lot of really hard things happen in them. And even looking at some, at some of the Cork O'Connor uh, series, and I was like, so when you're titling a book, I mean, are you thinking through that juxtaposition? Uh, how does that come about for you? Generally speaking, no. Okay. You do? Okay. Right. If you look at my mystery yeah. series, the Cork O'Connor, yeah. the New York Times best-selling Cork O'Connor yeah. mystery series, <laughs> yeah. um, you you ought to become aware that each of the titles is a two-word place name, mm. and what that does is it allows me to riff a lot on a place name. For example, I have a novel in that series called Heaven's Keep. That's the one that takes place in Wyoming, yeah. and Heaven's Keep is an actual fictional uh, geologic formation that I've created for the story, but it also, if you read the story, you understand that it's really about what heaven takes and heaven keeps, heaven yeah. takes from you and keeps from you. Yeah. Um, so I like to, to riff off the titles as yeah. well. Um, Ordinary Grace, when I began that story, it was not called Ordinary Grace. The working title was Awful Grace, mm. taken from the, um, the Aeschylus quote that's so important to the story. Yeah. Aeschylus quote goes like this, he who learns must suffer, and even in our sleep, pain which cannot forget, falls drop by drop upon the human heart, mm. until in our own despair, against our will, comes wisdom through the awful grace of God. So it was called Awful Grace. I knew that was not a great title. <laughs> I'm not sure I'd <laughs> yeah, yeah. called Awful Grace. Yeah, yeah. 
Uh, but in the course of working with the story, I came to realize that what I was talking about here are the ordinary blessings that we're willing to offer one another in our, in our daily lives, our willingness to forgive, our willingness to embrace the brokenness that is the human experience. Um, so I thought, okay, I'm talking about these ordinary blessings. I'm going to call it ordinary grace. And it was so appropriate for that story. Uh, and and as, soon as, the, as soon as the title came to me, I, I began to visualize a scene in this story in which that phrase itself is going to take on great import. Uh, this Tender Land actually, I wrote a novel before this Tender Land, a manuscript for a novel before this Tender Land that I asked my publisher not to publish because it was not good. Uh, and they turned out to be quite an understanding. <laughs> they paid me a lot of money for that manuscript. But they said, fine, you don't have to give us this manuscript, but you still owe us a companion novel to Ordinary Grace. So when I wrote the companion novel, which is the one that, that's sitting there in front of you on our table, um, yeah. I kept only one thing from that earlier manuscript, and that was the title, This Tender Land. I loved the title. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was so much even more appropriate for this particular story than for the one I bagged. Yeah. Yeah, no, there, it's... And there, I mean, there's, they are so... They suggest so much. They're yeah. so evocative in and of themselves. Yeah, I think... Um, and it's helpful looking at the titles after reading them, too, to realize, okay, they're that much more powerful after you've walked through it as well. Um, but I was... Uh, yeah, I was... Uh, it, it was hard to, um, you know, read some of the stories, but at the same time, it really kind of comes down to that grace element there that is absolutely beautiful and violent as well. I mean, mm -hmm. that, that's part of what we, we deal with in the, in mm -hmm. the, with the human condition. Um, so we share um, a love for a few books, of course, To Kill a Mockingbird, which I'd read that you, you love. But, uh, but I, I don't even think I, when I was reading this Tenderland, I don't think I read that, you know, the influence, you know, up front of Huckleberry Finn. I, I hadn't read anything about it. I just went ahead and just read it. And um, it just, it felt like home, you know, reading Good. something like that. And uh, being from Missouri as well. And yeah, Midwest. Growing up, yes. Very Midwestern novel. It, it is, that's why. And maybe that's why I connect, a lot of these have connected so well. I, just, I mean, Minnesota, Missouri, Iowa, you feel a lot of these stories. Absolutely. And, uh, um, that's why I was curious, like when you go to some other place, West Coast, Southeast, wherever, do you get any sort of reaction there? Huh? But, yeah, uh, you know, it's still, yeah. uh, to, to people who've never taken the time to drive the country, yeah. Yeah. Wow, they've missed out on an enormous experience, but they they have only flown over. You know, we're the great flyover, yeah. and they have no idea of the beauty of this place. So one of the things that I set out to do both with Ordinary Grace and this Tenderland, you know, in the Cork O'Connor series, I talk a lot about the beauty of the North Country, which people expect. Um, in this Tenderland and Ordinary Grace, I wanted to talk about the beauty of the agrarian Midwest, mm -hmm. the, the beauty of the soy bean fields or the corn fields and and how they sing to you when the wind blows and uh, and how they you know if you've seen soybean fields in the wind it's like a sea with waves on it and fireflies and all of these beautiful parts of the midwest that uh, you know from 30,000 feet you haven't a clue about 
Yeah, you, you probably an advocate for driving across America. I present. So you can I see, love. like, yeah, yeah. Well, my wife is a neo, yeah. is a is a an eco Nazi. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. Okay. So, she's so when I do book tours, uh, she requires me to drive as often as we can, sure. rather than okay. to fly. Yeah. So we do a lot of road trips together. But look at what you see. I, I mean, know, in the process, I know. yeah. And I, yeah. I have mm-hmm. never tired of driving through yeah. small town America. Yeah. Right. I love small towns. Get off the interstate yep. and, and just yep. go. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I grew up right off Route 66, and uh, you kind of learned that story, you know, as a kid of kind of what life was like before the interstate, and uh, uh, it's fascinating. So now you've written a lot of characters, too, that are, you know, 12, 13 years old, kind of that range is uh, why that age. And I, I always think of stories like Stand By Me and so mm-hmm. many of, you know, just like a... Uh, Tom Sorn Huckleberry Finn, you kind of get to that age, but mm-hmm. like, what what attracts you to that age to to write about characters? Then I never grew up. Yeah, <laughs> and I think most guys are stuck. There's a part of them that's stuck in their adolescence. You know, we like toys, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's fair. Uh, the toys just change. Yeah, <laughs> that's um, true. And there's something about that particular age, 12, 13, 14 years old. I mean, that's the threshold. That's where we begin to transition into what the men were going to become. So we're moving from who we were as children into, um, into our manhood. And that period is such an important transitional period that I think most of us, most men anyway, can certainly go back and pinpoint important things about that period. So there is a part, part of us, I think, that's kind of stuck there. Um, so Ordinary Grace is told from a kid who's 13 years old, this tender land, Odie, the narrator, is almost 13 years old. The Cork O'Connor novel that I just finished takes Cork in his 13th year. Maybe I've done the 13-year-old yeah, thing enough. Yeah. We'll see. We'll mm, see. Yeah. But, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm believing that women have that same affinity for novels about what it was to be an adolescent uh, girl. Um, you know, um, little women. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I, I don't read adolescent women novels, so I can't <laughs> no. come up with a lot. <laughs> yeah, for sure. For no, sure. but and, and we both have daughters, you know, in in that age range right now, and they're asking big questions, sure. mm-hmm. and they're wanting to be shown whatever way uh, it is into that kind of next stage of life, I mean, and and they're going to look in all sorts of places, good, bad, everything, and uh, but the reality is it's coming. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah. 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 So that's the yeah. only explanation I have for no. it at the moment. Uh, no, it's great. I, 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 again, I, I think of some of my favorite novels, um, you know, growing up and, and even today. And they're just, I, I, I see that as well. Yeah. Very yeah. cool. Um, so when you were, uh, you know, writing this Tenderland, did you go back and read Huckleberry Finn? Yeah. What was that like reading again? I actually read Huckleberry Finn probably a year ago. Okay. Um, so it had been a while, but, you know, that's fine. That's just fine. Yeah. I didn't want it to be Huckleberry Finn. Yeah. I wanted it to be Huckleberry Finn-ish. <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah. yeah. Just in terms of yeah. the river being a significant part of the story and the cultures along the river and what the river can represent. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's a metaphor for so many things. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I didn't, uh, I didn't reread just before I... I began working on the novel. Actually, it was it was longer ago than that for Huckleberry Finn. Nor did I reread the Iliad entirely, yeah. because uh, this tender the structure of this tenderland is the structure of the Iliad. Yeah. Um, but I had recently read some Charles Dickens, and that first 
that opening section of the book is very Charles Dickens. Yep. It, I love reading Dickens. I uh, I got into him when I was in my teens with mm-hmm. great expectations. And uh, every, that's that's the first. My, was my first Dickens. Okay, still my favorite Dickens. It, absolutely, absolutely. It is, and it's so underrated. Um, like I I think maybe now. Yeah, I mean it was the book you were supposed sure. to read in high school. Oh, sure, right. that was. I mean they didn't. That's when I read it. Was it was not. Yeah. It was not on our on our syllabus. Canada left it out. Canada left it <laughs> what out. Happened? <laughs> what happened? No. <laughs> what are we doing? What are we even doing? I bet eh? they had some Margaret Atwood it, on that list though. Oh, um, yeah. I actually didn't have any on mine. Oh, interestingly, really? Um, yeah. Robertson Davies. Nope. Okay. They didn't have any. But I have read. But I have read all three. Um, okay. There. But it was. I can't remember any significant piece of literature that they put on and even even understanding that I don't like the book um, it's still a significant piece of literature um, and it's really just that I don't like the main character Catcher in the Rye that's the last significant piece of, of work that is on that, that I remember any of us being required to read mm-hmm. and that was in the eighth grade or have seventh you read grade. it since I have not read you it need to since it. my now teens as an adult. okay I will do that there's just this fear that it's like okay is Am I still gonna just wanna wanna slap Holden Caulfield? I know, yeah. I know, <laughs> do, do, I know. But but, <laughs> but as an adult, you have the compassion to to see yeah. what's going on with this kid, what okay. he has to deal with. Yeah, because yeah, I had the same reaction yeah. the first time I read Catcher in the Rye. Get oh my god, what's yeah, wrong with yeah. you, Holden? Yeah. And this is like as a pe- as a peer aged person yeah. basically that it's like yeah. I just want to beat you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's where the sucker punch comes from. Yeah. Yeah. Holfield has been on multiple times. I've been multiple people. We don't throw it out. They just like they have they have issues. They need to get out. Yeah, absolutely, their... absolutely. I know. Um, so, how does so when you're think, thinking about your um, your writing process, um, you know, and and reading's connection to that, when you're when you're writing, do you try to stay away from reading other books, or do you are you just still continuing to feed in? No, um, I have no fear of reading other books, and there are times when I will select another book because I need some inspiration. Mm. Case in point, when I was first working on Ordinary Grace, I was struggling with language. I wanted, I wanted to elevate the language. When I when I write a Cork O'Connor novel, I write at a certain level because um, because there are other things that are more important to me. Yeah. Language is important, and I try to I try to make my high school English teaching father proud of what I did, but I wanted to elevate the language of ordinary grace. I wanted to create a different, a kind of a a language of reverie. Mm -hmm. Um, And and so I read Cormac McCarthy. I read uh, Crossing, and I had no idea what was going on during the course of most of that story, but I loved the language. I loved the rhythm. Um, and so that inspired me when I went back and really was able, what allowed me to get a foothold for Ordinary Grace. Yeah, I can, I can imagine. Uh, and again, like reading helps inspire certainly other things, but uh, also just within that genre, it's got to be fascinating to kind of go back and start looking at other authors who are in the middle of, of writing some similar things. Are there, do you ever like going to different genres just for your own entertainment or? When I'm reading, Generally, I read uh, in the crime genre, yeah. mysteries typically. Yeah, because I, I I am still learned. I still have so much to learn. I came late to it, so I'm still reading Raymond Chandler and uh, 
and Dashiell Hammett and James M. Cain and John D. MacDonald. I'm still discovering the roots of the American crime novel. Yeah. Um, when I'm not reading in the genre, though, I like to read Midwest authors. Yeah. Uh, as I tell audiences, I think that a case can be made that there is, in fact, a Midwest voice in literature. It's a very spare voice, but very eloquent. Mm -hmm. And I think it rises significantly out of our understanding of our relationship with this land we occupy. You know, we take great pride in believing that we shape the land, but the land shapes us as well. Mm -hmm. So uh, Marilyn Robinson is one of my favorites, and uh, yeah, well, Kent Haroff, before he passed... That's how you pronounce his name. Um, so yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, we've talked about Marilyn Robinson before yep. as well. Yeah, yep. absolutely. Yeah, so beautiful. Um, yeah, so it, are there any writers that we should pay attention to as well? Are there books? There's a writer out of Minnesota. He was born in Minnesota. You've never heard of him, unfortunately. It's one, I think his, his writing is just second to none. His, he's another Kent. His name is Kent Myers. Okay. Yeah, M-E-Y-E-R-S. He teaches now in Spearfish uh, for South Dakota, but he grew up on a hard scrabble farm in southwest um, Minnesota. This is how I first became aware of, of Kent. When my first novel, Iron Lake, came out, I got a call one night, and the woman on the other end said, uh, Hello, Mr. Kruger, I represent the Friends of the American Writers' Prize. I had no idea what that was. I have since learned that it's a pretty prestigious, pretty prestigious prize that Toni Morrison won it, uh, um, Carl Sandburg won it. Mm -hmm. And she said, you have won the American Writers' Prize. I said, well, okay. Wow. And she said, oh, oh, I'm sorry, I misspoke. You came in second. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the book that won was a book called The Witness of Combines yeah. by an author named Kent Myers. And I thought, okay, I lost to a farm book. I got to read this book. So I read The Witness of Combines, and it is uh, it is a series of essays um, in which Kent talks about the fact that when he was 16 years old, his father died at planting time. I think it was an aneurysm, very suddenly. Yeah. And, uh, and because they couldn't sell the farm, the kids had to do what their father taught them in terms of planting, overseeing, harvesting those crops. And these essays are talk about what he and his, his siblings learned from their parents that allowed them to do that. And the one thing I love about this is, while all of this is going on, uh, the, far, the, the old farmers whose land abuts theirs stand back and let these kids do what their parents have taught them. Mm. But when it comes time to harvest, they all show up with their, their harvesters to give a hand, sure. their combines. Sure. So Kent, um, uh, Work of Wolves, um, something tree, I can't remember that. At any rate, fine novelist, very unfortunately unknown. We have another great, great writer here. Um, and, and you interviewed him not too long ago, Leif. Leif, Leif Finger, yeah. yeah. Uh, Virgil yeah. Wander, uh, Peace yeah. Like a River. I, I just love his work. Yeah. But I mean, I think uh, Aaron and I were attracted to running in a similar way to Leif, just in the sense of like this honor to the land. I think yeah. that's what we yeah. felt like, wow, this is a... I mean, I've been to Minnesota plenty of times, but and even up north, but you write about it in a way that interests me that much more. And I, I feel like most readers would pick up on that same thing. And that was... Yeah. Uh, yeah, we enjoyed that. That was a, a nice surprise after reading some of his books, too. Yeah, I try yeah. to write profoundly out of a sense of place. So even the, the novels that I set outside Minnesota, I spent a good deal of time in those places so that I could soak up uh, sensually everything that I needed to put on the page for the reader to experience that place.
So has your family uh, wanted to be a, a character in any of the stories? Have <laughs> <laughs> they come to you and say, ah, that's it. You've written all these books. Where am I in this? <laughs> I, well, I actually yeah. have included my family in, okay. in the books. Uh, <laughs> my daughter, I actually used her name. Uh, I didn't use my son's name when I put him in the books. There are real characters in the books that have nothing to do with my family. People actually pay to be in my novels. I don't know if you've talked to other authors about no, this. No, I didn't know. Wow. Okay. Oh, so okay. It's just yeah. a sideline yeah. that helps us earn more money. Yeah. No, this is, yeah. what, this is the reality. Like, what? Yeah. <laughs> um, there are all kinds of charitable fundraising uh, events that go on. And uh, if you're asked as an author to offer uh, an auction item for the fundraiser, very often the... The prize offering is a character name in a book. The winning yeah. bidder gets to be that. a character in a book. So in most of my novels, you're going to find three, four, sometimes even five characters <laughs> who have uh, bid to be there and put money into and, a charitable and offering. And they're okay if they're and, in the antagonist or something like well, that? I would, I would, <laughs> You'll I be fine. To, I try to create the characters... <laughs> As near to the real people as I can. Okay. So physically, okay. what are your interests? Say, have you, do you have nicknames I could put in that people would recognize? Those kinds of things. Yeah. And I, I always give the, I always give the person uh, the chance to choose. Do you want to be a good person or a bad person? What do you think most people choose? Bad person. Most people want to be a bad know, person, yeah. uh, at least in the pages of a novel. Yeah. So I try to, uh, I try to do what they would like yeah. me to do in well, those stories. I don't stories. think people would take it too seriously, and that's the no, point. No, no, no. Yeah. Some have wanted to be really bad, so I've made them oh. really bad. <laughs> okay. Okay. Oh, All right. Fascinating. Well, since you mentioned Hemingway, what's your favorite Hemingway? No. The Old Man and the Sea. I think it is, it is one of the classic American novels. It's the one that I can reread. I go back and I read, uh, try to read A Farewell to Arms and it feels dated to me, or The Sun Also Rises. Uh, for a book club I'm lead, reading, we're going to be uh, reading For Whom the Bell Tolls for, for the May book. So I'm interested to see if that holds up for me as well. But The Old Man and the Sea, it's one I reread periodically because it's just such a stellar, stellar piece of writing and a fine... Um, a fine emotional story for a guy who, you know, was a man's man. There's a lot of emotion in that story. Yeah. Yeah. About five years ago, I went through a big Hemingway kick and going back rereading or reading some for the first time, but I didn't go back through Old Man in the Sea. Yeah. And I remember I, loving I it in high school. It was wonderful. It. Highly recommend yeah. it. His short stories also hold up quite well. All right. Well, um, shall we introduce the. Uh, <laughs> I think it's that time. I think it's that time. I think it's that time. All right. This is what we told you about, Kent. This is uh, this is what sets us apart as one of the great podcasts out there right now. So. Yeah. So as we discussed before the show, one of the things that we we give our guests is the the honor, joy, privilege, awkward decision of sharing who they would like to not who or what they would like to nominate as the Jack Reacher Sucker Punch of the Week, and so that uh, privilege. It falls upon you today. Oh, this is so easy. This nice. is I like so it. easy. I would love to gut punch the U.S. Congress. <laughs> now, <laughs> I, I am so sick of the partisan politics. I would love to see them come to their senses as reasonable human beings and settle down and begin to solve the problems that are so, that so need to be solved right now. I would like them to stop the name calling and the, um, and the, the 
vilification of one another mm. and just reach across the aisle and say, let's get some work done. Yeah. You know, I understand, I understand how high emotions can be generated, but there's a higher calling here and they need to answer that higher calling for all of us. Yeah. yeah. No, that's, yeah. that's absolutely noble. And I, I think it's, we are a tribal people and yes. people and it's in the online world and the, 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 well, this goes back to To Kill a Mockingbird to me all the time. It's are you willing to learn what it's like to step into someone else's shoes and walk around them for a while? Yeah. So no matter what you believe, can you still talk and have a conversation with someone, whether you agree with them or not, so you can come and find some fun, common ground? And that's, uh, there's not a day that goes by that I don't think of the lessons I learned, you know, reading uh, a book like that. And... Yeah. yeah, we concur. That's a good one. Yeah, that's absolutely. That's a really good one. That's really and strong. timely yes. as well right now. Absolutely. This is February 5th when we're recording, everyone. So, <laughs> yeah. so you, do the, you do the math on, yeah. Uh, yeah. on what else we may have been the, watching the in the past the few days. Today is the day the vote is taken yes. in Congress. Yes, yes. Yeah. yeah. That's right. That's right. That's good. All right, so. and, and last what we do is just, uh, yeah, what are you reading right now? I actually lead a book club for our, uh, for our church. We're, we've been together now, a quarter, I think, a quarter of a century. Um, and this year, what we've chosen to do is read a book by every Nobel, American Nobel Prize winner in literature. Mm. Um, and the book I'm reading right now is the book we'll discuss for February, uh, William Faulkner's The Reavers. And Falk, if you know Faulkner's work, it's, it's so daunting. Yeah. His, his sentence structure, his paragraph structure can be so complex. Yeah. And, that's, and it's true of The Reavers. But what a fun story. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Having a great time with it. Yeah. Awesome. I, and I hope, I hope the rest of the book club uh, is there too. Nice. Yeah. I love that you were leading that. Yes. I think that is, um, and this is, I presume, a mixture of men and women, correct, that are in it? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I've tried a handful of book clubs. My, and I interviewed my mom a long time ago because she, through 40 years, she was an English teacher as well. Yeah. And she's been in book clubs for 40 plus years, mm-hmm. led many, some just participated. It's her way of discovering things. Sure. But yeah. I love it. You're writing and you're leading in how to uh, talk about other <laughs> books that are out there. Yes. So. Well, some writers like to stick to their own, and they don't want to, yeah, you know, uh, one of the, rise up others, which I love. One of the advantages of a book club is it forces you to read books you would not necessarily choose to read yourself. And I can't tell you how many times I've been pleasantly surprised uh, by reading something that I had a preconceived idea about, and was mm. and I was just totally wrong. It's great. That's that well, there's a lot you recommended in here too, so yes. I'm going to put this on the show notes. And yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right, I'll go. Uh, Before I, I'm, I'm, my daughter for class right now is reading Hatchet by Gary Paulson. Sure. So speaking of another, another Minnesota which, author which, there, right? So, and I read it. Uh, it came out. This would have been. I don't know. So she's in sixth grade. I, I read it that same time when it would ju- just won the Newbery Award winner. I think it was sometime in the mid '80s, I mm-hmm. believe. So I read it then, and it's been fun rereading it. Okay. And, uh, it's not a long book, but yeah. it's. Uh, but it's a great survival tale, and uh, and again that similar age again. Mm-hmm. I like what's it like being mm-hmm. tested, whether you're a boy or a girl, just being tested, and uh, and that's been fun to talk through those things with her too. So there's another book I would yeah. like to write an updated version of. Okay, okay. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, and I I was reading you know just on Goodreads like there's there people some people hated it for that reason too. They mm-hmm. love the the structure, the basic idea of what the book is, but I, I you're not the first to mention that, which is. <laughs> fascinating so yeah. there you go so we're in the very middle cool. of that right now very cool chapter a night type thing so 
Yeah. Um, well, I mean, in addition to the things that I'm still continuing to uh, continuing to read, um, among those uh, finishing this Tenderland, um, uh, I'm also working through a through the book of essays by Nick Hornby that I mentioned. Uh, Shakespeare wrote for money. Um, it's it's a collection of his essays from Believer magazine okay. in the mid 2000s, um, and so it's super fun. And I just like the way he writes. It's it it speaks to me on a on a very mopey adult male level. Sure. So um, <laughs> so that's that that's that part of my thirteen year oldness that I never okay. grew out of. Everyone has an author and alter ego that they kind of like you know Absolutely. latch on to. His is Nick Hornby. Absolutely, he's the classic. He Absolutely, just, could be yeah. worse. It's no, true. It I mean, worse. him and yeah. him and um, you know desiring to write like Michael Chabon. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because. Man, that guy can write. Yeah. But um, so those and uh, getting started on the second of Craig Johnson's Longmire Mysteries. Okay. So that's you couldn't be reading it. a better guy. Yeah, he's he's great. I enjoy I enjoyed the first one. The great. Um, hope someday you have a chance to talk to him. He's so much fun. Nice. He's he's one of the he's one of the most accomplished raconteurs I have ever met. <laughs> that guy can tell a story like nobody else. Well, we would, we're going to work on making that happen then. So, yeah. Great. Okay, thank you for doing yes, thank this. You thank so you so much. for making the time for this. This has been really fascinating. And again, like for the listeners, uh, we, we hope you will go, if you have not discovered his works, go read this Tenderland. Go read Ordinary yeah. Grace. Go read the Cork O'Connor mystery series. But yeah. uh, but just enjoy the story you lost in it. Yeah. Thank you, Ken. This has been this fun, is, guys. Yeah. Thanks so much for coming, for inviting yeah. me to be a part of this. Yeah, of course. Our pleasure. Our pleasure. So, listeners, thanks for hanging out, and uh, we'll talk to you later. Bye. This is an Area Code podcast.